introduce myself. Uh, my name is Steve Timmis, um, not Stephen Timmins, as the uh, notices say, but Steve Timmis. Um, it's a long, long time since anyone called me Stephen. Uh, not even my wife, when she's cross with me, calls him Stephen. So uh, please call me Steve if you have cause to speak to me. I'm from Sheffield, uh, which is a, a beautiful city in the north of the country, and um, nestled uh, at the foot of the Peak District, and uh, more trees per head of population than any other European city. That's a little-known fact about the city of Sheffield. Um, so, um, we're here to look at the issue of capturing the affections. Oh, I should just say, I'm, I'm a, a, a husband of uh, one wife, a father of uh, four children, grandfather to three grandchildren, uh, an owner of one dog, and um, and uh, a supporter of Manchester United. So. <laughs> um, right, I, we're, we're going to have a look at a number of issues today. So th this is primarily, in the sense of the way we're getting into it, it's, it's theological. And because it's theological, we're going to cover uh, such areas as anthropology, ecclesiology, pneumatology, eschatology. Uh, in fact, any ology that you want to mention, uh, we're going to touch on uh, this, this, this afternoon. But only very briefly. Um, but I do want to begin by earthing what we're, we're going to say in the gospel itself. Uh, that is so important. Um, and it's not going to be highfalutin theology, but it is just uh, grassroots understanding of the gospel. Um, and because I have this conviction that the gospel is both awesomely expansive, that it's, uh, it, it's a grand unifying theory, if you like, um, but it is also phenomenally intimate. Um, so it answers the big questions of life and it addresses all the personal details of our existence in terms of our identity, in terms of our, our, our experience of life itself, suffering, um, etc. It's awesomely expansive, it's phenomenally intimate. Um, and and uh, as well as showing what the gospel is and how the gospel applies uh, to all of life, I want to then address three specific areas relating to mental health. Uh, I want to look at the issue of depression, uh, the issue of self-harm, and the issue of schizophrenia. Uh, and apply the principles to those three areas. And I've chosen those three areas, one because they fall within the, um, the, 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 the scope of my own experience. These are specific cases uh, that I've uh, de dealt with, individuals uh, that I have a relationship with, um, and um, also because uh, they are, a number of them are what are generally regarded as hard cases. So I've not gone for the easy ones. I've tried to go for some more difficult ones to show how the gospel speaks directly into those situations and circumstances. Uh, let me begin by giving you a working definition of the gospel. Uh, I'm not going to unpack this in any great detail, but this is just so you know where, uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, Jesus, God's promised ruler and rescuer, lived our life and died our death. He rose again in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of the new creation to bring forgiven sinners together by his spirit to live under his gracious rule. As his rescued people, uh, we point towards and we wait for the new heaven and the new earth. So there's my working definition of the gospel. I think that's a, a useful one. It's a gospel in a nutshell. It's always going to have limitations. The whole of the Bible is an exposition of the gospel. Uh, so to think you can reduce it to a, three, a few hundred characters uh, is ambition bordering upon uh, insanity. Um, but I've, what I've tried to do there is just capture the main elements uh, for us. Um, and I think it works well because it focuses in on what God has done for us in Christ. Um, it's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It gives due weight to the people of God, those for whom Christ died, um, and them as being both the focus and the means of God's saving action. There's some uh, chairs around here, um, if you, you'd like some. Uh, save you sitting up at the back. There's uh, four or five down here. Please do feel free to come forward. 
apparently that floor isn't very comfortable, so you might want a chair. Now the gospel says something significant about God and it says something significant about us as human beings. Uh, The gospel is first and foremost uh, the definitive word about God. Um, The God that we worship as Christians, is a God who's made himself known. He's, he's, he's revealed himself. And, and that self-disclosure of God, this, this ultimate supreme being, this self-disclosure of God comes to us supremely in Christ and in the gospel. Not exclusively, Romans 1 tells us that, but supremely in Christ and the gospel. And it's on the cross that we see the heart and the character of God exposed for everyone to see. So if you really want to know who God is and what God is like, says Christian theology, you go to the cross, Christ crucified. That is where you see it. That is where God's self-revelation is just at its most brilliant and stark and shocking and glorious. And on the cross, we see God as being a God of love. We see him as being a God of justice, a God of wisdom. He's a God of holiness, a God of mercy. And a God of grace. All of those attributes, characteristics of God are displayed, are put on public display for us at Calvary. And this is God as he wants to be known. This is God as he, hit, as he is. This is as he has shown himself to be in Christ. The enfleshed, crucified, risen and exalted God. So... The gospel is the definitive word about God. If we want to know who God is, we've got to begin with the gospel. If we want to know who we are, we have to begin with the gospel too. And once again, the cross is the clearest focus. That's where we see most clearly what we are as human beings. And what does the cross say about us? It says that we are broken, that we are rebellious, that we are needy, that we are impotent. Now it says much more... But that is in terms of God, how he has revealed himself, what he has revealed himself to be in the cross. But in terms of us, we're shown at the cross to be broken, rebellious, needy and impotent. Now there's a certain irony there, isn't there? Because the gospel, the word gospel means good news. But as we talk about what the gospel says about us, then we find in the first instance it's not good news at all. It's bad news. But that's the point. The gospel is good news because it is such bad news. And we'll only understand just how good the good news of the gospel is when we understand just how bad we are without the gospel. We are outside of Christ. Because no matter how bad the news about us is, that we are broken and rebellious and needy and impotent, the news is good because in Christ Jesus... God has acted decisively and effectively in doing something about our predicament. That is the gospel. Now all of this is, this is Christian theology 101. It's not, uh, as I say, it's not highfalutin theology at all, but quite deliberately and and intentionally. The, The gospel says that in Christ, God has intervened into the human predicament and he's rescued us. And the resurrection... That's God shouting to the world, if you like, on the first Easter morning, um, demonstrating to the world the magnitude of the good news. It is God saying the deed is done. Rescue has been effective. Salvation has been secured. So it's a definitive word about God. It's a definitive word about us. This is God. A God of love, justice, mercy, grace, and holiness, and so on. This is us, broken, rebellious, needy, impotent. But God intervenes, rescues us, and in his action, he brings us into a glorious new status, a glorious new relationship, a glorious new position that the Bible describes as being in Christ. So you read the opening chapter of Paul in Ephesians, for example, and you'll keep coming across that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And it is hugely significant in terms of uh, understanding who we are. In fact, you can't overstate the importance of it. It is in that privileged position of being in Christ because of God's saving action 
of which the gospel tells me, that uh, we find our true humanity. It's there that we discover what it really means to be human. Outside of Christ, we have a fractured humanity. It is only in Christ that we have a restored humanity. Because Christ is not only the God-man, Christ is also the true man. Christ is man as God intended man to be. And Christ with his people, there we have humanity as God intended humanity to be. And that's gloriously uh, significant. See, God's ultimate purpose isn't about a solitary Christ reigning in eternity, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. That's not God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose, if you read further on in that chapter, is a, a, a risen, ascended, glorified Christ who is king of the universe, reigning over and with his people. That's God's ultimate purpose. Christ with his people. And it's as God acts on our behalf to bring us into Christ, into this relationship with him, that we, that we find, discover what it means to be truly human. So that introduces us to the next issue, which is the image of God. You'll be familiar, I'm sure, with the Genesis 1 narrative. God makes the the, the world everything that there is. You have this glorious rhythm, this structure to Genesis chapter 1. uh, And God said, and it was, and it was good, evening, morning, first day. And God said, and it was, evening, morning, second day, and so on. And then that rhythm is interrupted in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. Prior to that, every creative act of God had been simply a declaration. But here, it's a conversation. And what is the result of that conversation? It is man and woman, made in the image of God, made as God's image bearers. And it's as we, and, but we know uh, that the Genesis 3 narrative, that that image was broken, it was defaced, it was scarred. We became less than human as a result of our rebellion against our creator. But in Christ, that phrase again, that image is gloriously restored. And it is as we grow in likeness to Christ and as we grow into Christ that we become increasingly human as, as, as we conform to the likeness of the God in whose image we are made. It is in Christ, through the gospel, by the Spirit, that our brokenness is healed. That that scarred and defaced image of all the evidence that we see, not only in the pages of Scripture, but in our own experience and in our own world, it is that that, that image that is scarred and defaced is actually restored. Let's have a look at at Colossians 3, uh, just a couple of verses. Uh, Verses 9 to 10, this is what Paul says. Don't lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now what Paul is doing here is telling us about something that has happened to us. And it's very interesting that he has a a corporate focus. We once belonged to a broken humanity, he says. We were in Adam. We were in rebellion. But now we are in Christ. And what that means, we have become, we belong to a new humanity. And we are in the process, that's an important word, of being renewed in the knowledge of, in, in the image of God. But both of these status, positions that we have, in Adam or in Christ, are, are social entities. So that old humanity that we were outside of Christ because before God intervened in our lives, that old humanity in Adam is society fractured. If you had a look around those verses that we have up there on the screen, you'd find words like anger and wrath and malice. That's society fractured, isn't it? A society that, 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 that aspires to be something that it never can be. It, is, it aspires to be society, societal, but it, it retains its fracturedness. And the new humanity in Christ, in contradistinction from this old humanity in Adam, is society restored. And if you read uh, Colossians 3 again, you'd see words like compassion, kindness, and humility. So can you see what God has done? This God of which the gospel speaks has taken these humans of which the gospel speaks and has gloriously intervened in their lives, not only to save them individually, but to save them to form a whole new humanity, a whole new society. 
And that is God's ultimate purpose. That is where all of history is going, to this new creation that is Christ with his people. And he's in the process of working towards that. And we enjoy some of the benefits of that now. And I find this an incredibly hopeful picture. And I'm persuaded that this really is good news to all of us, wherever it is that we're, we, we're located on the brokenness spectrum. Because we are all located somewhere on that brokenness spectrum, aren't we? Every time we sin, that is an expression of our brokenness. That is an expression of insanity. It's a very good image of what sin is, biblically speaking. It's it's interesting how theologians have for a long time grappled over Genesis 3 and tried to understand it. What is going on there? How on earth could Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in that context, do what they did? And actually, there is no explanation. If you can understand the dynamic of Genesis 3 of the fall, then you fail to understand what sin is. There is something inexplicable about sin. It it is intrusive. It is something that you can't actually categorize. It is insanity. It doesn't make sense. And all of us, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, are men and women who are in need of the gospel. Not as something simply to save us at the beginning, but something to sanctify us, to make us like Christ, to something to bring us to glory. What is it that will bring us to glory? What is it that will make us like Jesus? What is it that will restore that broken image? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Christ crucified, that definition that we had before, taken by the Spirit and applied purposefully, pertinently, powerfully into each of our lives. That's what it is. But it's very important to realize that I'm not talking here about something that is cold and formal, a mere statement of fact. I'm talking about something that is gloriously existential. Have a look at this verse uh, from 2 Peter 1-4. to His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, we have been, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I'm just going to try and unpack that for you as we, as, as we go along. Because I think that what Peter is describing here is an expansive and an intimate salvation. Because that's what I think the gospel is. It is awesomely expansive. It is phenomenally intimate. So Peter says we have everything that we need for life and godliness in Christ. Through the gospel, by the spirit. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. Uh, And that is ours, Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through our knowledge of of, of Christ, through our knowledge of God in Christ, who's called us by his own glory and goodness, or or called us for his own glory and called us by his own goodness. And through his grace in calling us to be numbered in this new humanity, this this third race of his people, neither Jew nor Gentile, but uh, disciples of Jesus, Through his grace in calling us to be his, he has given us his very great and precious promises. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Isn't that a lovely verse? You read the Old Testament and what do you read it as? It's a story of the promises of God. A story of a promise of God to have a people for himself, for his glory. And in Christ... That is God saying, yes. In the Old Testament, you have the, uh, the, the narrative of God's promise to have a people who are forgiven. And in Christ, that promise is yes. A people who are indwelt by his spirit, in Christ, that promise is yes. A people who have a future and inheritance in Christ, that promise is yes. So all the Old Testament, with all of its promises, is gloriously yes in Christ. I had to say the same this morning. I'll say it now. I'm sorry. i not supposed to be preaching, so I'm going to stop at that point. I, they just, it excites me. So, um, and, and I'm a northerner, so what can I say? Um, okay, so through these promises that are made ours in Christ, through the gospel, 
And by the Spirit, Peter says there are two critical and significant things that occur that are there on the text. First of all, we participate in the divine nature. Isn't that, isn't that scary? Through Christ, in Christ, through the gospel, we participate in the divine nature. I want to quote you somebody who lived a long time ago and who wasn't known for overstatement. Uh, his name was John Calvin. And this is what he says. It is the purpose of the gospel to make us sooner or later like God. It is, so to speak, a kind of deification. Wow. That's what the gospel is. It's to make us like God. So that we bear a striking resemblance to the Son of God, Jesus himself. And that's not surprising when you go back to Genesis 1. God says, let us make man in our image. And the image of something is to represent that which is images. And that is what the human race was meant to be. And that is what in Christ it becomes. So then in eternity, as that image is gloriously restored in Christ, we become, as it were, like God. We're not God, of course we're not. But we're like God. We bear a striking resemblance to him. And that is ours in Christ through the gospel. But what else? The second thing. And in Christ, through the gospel, by the Spirit, we escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now the gospel word is essentially an eschatological word. By that I mean it's a word about the future. It's a word that speaks to us, that points to, towards the future when God is going to bring in his kingdom in all of its fullness. But in the present, we live in the light of what God has yet to do. We anticipate it, we expect it, we long for it. There is coming a time, the gospel tells us, when uh, of, of ultimate, final, irrevocable rescue. When God's work will be phenomenally complete. But just as that participation in that is already a reality, so too is the escape from corruption. That God is going to complete his work in us, but in the present... He has begun to do that. There is evidence of it here now through the gospel in Christ by the Spirit. But what is that corruption caused by according to Peter? And it's there. Evil desires. Now the word that used there, the Greek word is epithumia. An evil desire isn't a very good translation of it. Some translations use the word lust. Uh, the older translations, but that just has connotations, sexual connotations, which aren't helpful because that's not what it's talking about. So probably the best way to translate it is inordinate desire or out-of-kilter desire, uh, desire that is more than it, it should be. So we escape the corruption of the world caused by inordinate desire. You see, our problem as human beings is not that we want things, Our problem is that we want things too much. We want things too intensely. And I want to show you how that relates to those three issues of depression, uh, uh, self-harming and schizophrenia uh, in in, in a moment or two. But even good things become bad, bad things when they become God things. Even good things become bad things when they become God things. Let me illustrate it. I've been married for 30 years to a beautiful uh, woman uh, called Janet. I love her. I love her dearly. I love her madly. Uh, I love her more now than I did 30 years ago. I'm so thankful to the Lord for her. But she is a primary candidate in my life for inordinate desire. That is... She can become so important to me, too important to me, that I regard my whole life, my identity, as resting in her. So if ever she were to walk away from me, if ever she were to be taken from me, it would feel as though my life would just fall apart. I would have no reason for living. Now if that were the case, then my desire for my wife, which is a, a, a desire for, is a good thing, has become an inordinate desire, a corrupt desire. Desire that is out of place and out of kilter. So I've taken a good thing, a truly good thing, but it's become a bad thing because I've made her into a God thing. I'm made to glorify God. That is who I'm made to be as a, as, as a human being. All of us are that. Well, that is what we're made for. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him for, forever. But, but if in my desire for my wife, she, she, she replaces God, then that is an evil desire. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. 
Now, so much of our suffering is a direct consequence of our hearts being set on something. And I want to just unpack for you what a heart is, biblically speaking. But I'm going to pause at that point and give you a chance just to ask some questions for clarification. It may be because of, I'm going to earth all of this in three very practical case studies uh, that uh, I may say to you, can you just hold off whilst we, uh, because I'm going to come around to that now. But just in case there's anything you want me to reiterate, I'm very happy to do so. Yes, please. Okay, um, yeah, uh, the, the, the question about our suffering, uh, what I actually said is that so much of our suffering is a direct consequence of our hearts being set on uh, something, uh, is, a, is a consequence of our inordinate desire, our, our desire that is out, out, out of sync, out of kilter. Okay. Let me move on then to the question of the heart. Now, if you read the Bible, you cannot, you really cannot overstress the importance of the heart. In fact, it is the most important anthropological term in the Bible in terms of understanding who and what we are as human beings. So, as you read the, the, the Bible, uh, there are over 800 references in, in the Old Testament alone to it, nearly 900. Uh, we learn that the heart controls the body, uh, the facial expressions, the tongue, um, and other members. It's the heart that reflects, that thinks, that ponders. As eyes are meant to see and ears are meant to hear, uh, the heart is meant to discern and the heart is that which prompts action. The heart is our inner self. The heart is the real us. That is us. So when everything has been stripped away um, and, and, and all of our kind of behavior has uh, gone, all of our trying to please other people, all of our social conditioning, all of our rearing and whatever, the real us, is, uh, that, that is the Bible's term for it. So when uh, the Bible, uh, when a person lacks insight or judgment, the Hebrew speaks about lack of heart. Quite literally. The heart plans. So the heart is the inner forum where all of our decisions are made. The heart feels all forms of desire from, from, from the lowest, most basic, such as hunger and thirst, to the highest spiritual desires, such as reverence or remorse. All of those come from the heart. Uh, the heart can be wise or pure and perverse or crooked. The direction or bent of the heart determines the direction uh, of a person's life. That as your heart is set, then that is the way that your life will go. Those will, that, that is the cause of all of your actions. So if you want to know what kind of person a person is, then you see it by their actions. That's, that, that reveals it to, to, to us. That reveals what our heart is set on. And since the heart is the center of all of a person's emotional, intellectual, religious and moral activity, then the heart must be guarded above everything, is what the Bible says. Since it is the center of all a person's uh, emotional, uh, intellectual, religious and moral activity, you must guard your heart above everything else. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 7. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Where do all these come from? They come from out of our hearts. All these evils come from inside and make a man clean. Therefore, says Jesus, it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter whether you wash your, 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 your cups or your dishes in a ceremonial way. Having unceremonially clean dishes isn't going to make you unclean. Because none of that deals with the heart. It's a heart that reveals. So that's why he says in Luke chapter 6, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And so the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. 
And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. I'm sure you've heard the phrase a Freudian slip. Uh, you know, where you say something and uh, before it's out, it's just you just realize you can't pull it back in. And it actually reveals something significant or so it's claimed. Well, that's really what Jesus is talking about a long time before, before Freud. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Something comes out and actually we think, I wish I hadn't said that. But in that moment, we revealed almost certainly something that's going on in our heart. Our minds try to keep it in, as it were, through self-control, but it's just kind of erupted from us. That's why they say many a true word spoken in jest. We try to hide what's going on in our heart. So when we're dealing with the issue... And, and this is where I'm, I will now go on and look at the three specific issues. Um, in terms of helping people uh, with mental illness, helping people towards uh, mental health, pastoral care, that, that, that the key component of it is bringing the good news, that is the gospel that we are unpacked in the uh, first few minutes of this session, bringing the good news to bear upon the heart, upon our affections, if you like. It's not just our emotions. It's upon our affections, of which our emotions are an expression of those. It's subjecting our affections, our heart, to gospel scrutiny, so that through its truth, by the Spirit, we will become true image bearers. Let me repeat that again. It's about bringing the good news to bear upon our hearts, upon our affections. It's subjecting our affections or our heart to gospel scrutiny so that through its truth, by the Spirit, we are becoming true image bearers. And I want to see, show you how that works in depression, self-harming and schizophrenia with three specific cases. Any questions at this stage? Okay. I'll press on. Let's have a look at the issue of depression then. Um, treating people with depression um, is not simply a matter of, uh, about the decision of whether to medicate or not to medicate. Um, I don't think that medication is always wrong uh, or inappropriate. And I do think there are occasions where medication is actually very helpful. And in fact, I would go so far as to say necessary. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen that uh, and, and uh, been very thankful for that. Uh, but I'm, always, I'm also persuaded that medication is not always helpful and uh, there can often be an easy solution uh, to what is a complex and very difficult issue. Um, so in, in, in my frame of reference, a human being is neither uh, purely biological nor exclusively spiritual. Um, I take it as, as, as basic to our biblical anthropology, uh, what, what theologians call a duality of personhood. Uh, that, that there's a complexity, a God-created complexity about us that means that we are both physical and spiritual. We consist of both body and soul, uh, and, and mind and heart, and that that relationship between the two is very complex and very intricate. The biblical hymn writer uh, observed, didn't he, once that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, the more sophisticated our knowledge about human beings become, the more I think we have to concur with his apparently primitive assessment. We are indeed wonderfully and fearfully made. Now, some time ago, uh, there was an article that appeared in the American Journal of Psychiatry uh, that was entitled, The Functional uh, Neuroanatomy of the placebo effect. Uh, and it was written by Susan Mayberg and her colleagues, and uh, they asked two principal questions. Do placebos, when they alleviate depressive symptoms, produce actual changes in the brain? Do placebos, when they alleviate depressive symptoms, produce actual changes in the brain? And then secondly, are those changes in the brain similar to those found with effective um, uh, uh, antidepressants? Are they similar 
to those of effective antidepressants? Well, the answer that the study proposed to both of those questions was quite simply yes. So when placebos result in reports that someone feels less depressed, then cellular changes uh, are seen in, uh, are, are seen in PET scans. They're observable. And, and those cellular changes are very similar to those that appear in real uh, antidepressants. In fact, the brain changes from placebos are almost indistinguishable from the pl- brain changes uh, related to psychoactive medication. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? If that, that, that report, that uh, research has any credibility, as, as, as I think it does, um, it is interesting. And it's not that people feel less depressed after taking a placebo, because there's a lot of evidence to show that, but that there is an observable physical effect to it. Because if it's likely that chemical manipulation of our brains changes our thoughts and our feelings which quite clearly it does, then isn't it also likely that our thoughts and our feelings are going to change chemical activity of our brain because of this glorious complexity in us as human beings? So in this study, the patient takes a placebo, obviously not knowing that it's a placebo, but with the expectation that the medication will work. And it's that expectation that affects change. Let me read you the conclusion of another study, this time in the Journal of the uh, Medical Association, uh, on the effect of St. John's wort in uh, major depressive illness. Uh, The the quote's up there. Um, The placebo effect, when it is from a pill, is increasing at a rate of about 7% each decade. In other words, if 30% of a group of depressed people responded to placebos in 1970, 50% of that group would respond to them today. Such use of placebos suggests that as a culture, we are putting more and more hope in our pills. The placebo effect is a measure of our confidence, the trust we place in a particular object. So those who put their trust in witch doctors might die from his voodoo threats because they believe in witch doctors. Those who trust in pills might report some healing from placebos because they believe in medication. As long as psychiatric medications are perceived as the deepest treatment for depression, the placebo effect will flourish. Now let me give you a real life example. Let me introduce you to Brian. Brian was a a very thoughtful, earnest and intelligent young man. He came from a a warm and a loving and a very supportive family. He was a high achiever who usually excelled in anything that he put his hand to, uh, be it sport, be it uh, academic work or whatever. Um, Yet Brian, when I met him, found himself becoming uh, down, lifeless, just disinterested really in what was going on around him. We talked uh, together uh, on a number of occasions, uh, and he cited overwork as a reason, uh, unreasonable demands being placed upon him by others, and even uh, sleep loss as the reasons for his mood. I just need to, I just need to get my life into better order. He said, "Then I'll feel happier. Then I'll feel uh, more alive again." Uh, in our conversations, I try to look at sleep loss as a symptom rather than a, a cause, but. Brian was adamant that there was nothing wrong and that really he should just pull himself together. Uh, He didn't. He couldn't. And eventually, uh, he went to see his GP, who very quickly put him on medication for depression. Um, And there was a slow but very real improvement in Brian. All was well for a year or so, but then the cycle began again. We began to talk once more. And like before, Brian was certain that there was nothing that was causing his depression. It was just the way that he was. He'd come to terms with that, he said, and he was going to go back to his GP for more tablets. But despite his apparent insistence that this is just the way that I am, he was obviously troubled by his feelings. He kept reminding himself in his conversations with me that he had no right to feel like this. In fact, he had even less right than he did a year ago. 
His life was, no, was, was nowhere near as demanding as it was then. But sleep loss was a recurring problem in Brian's life. In our conversations, I persevered with Brian with uh, all the gentleness that I could muster. Eventually, it came out that, among other things, he was upset. He was upset primarily because of his mother's degenerative illness. She was a good woman, a lovely woman. She had an important job, and she'd had to give that up because she could no longer cope physically with the demands that it placed upon her. And Brian was adamant, it just isn't right. Uh, It isn't fair. It seems that with his mother's illness, Brian had had to come face to face with his own impotency, probably for the first time in his life. And he asked these questions, not, not, uh, not, not implicitly, but overtly. Why couldn't he be more help to his mum? Why couldn't he have the answer? In fact, he said, that is the answer. Why couldn't he have the illness? That's the answer. He should have the condition. Because he was younger, he was more able, he'd be able to cope with it, he said. And actually it wouldn't matter so much for me as it does for my mum. And as we began to talk this through, the real issue came into sight to both of us, to Brian as well as to me. God was to blame. God didn't really know what he was doing. God was being unjust, God was being unfair. Brian could have actually done a better job than God in the circumstances. And as we talked, it became clear that disappointed expectations on Brian's part, accompanied by a God complex, turned out to be a potent and debilitating combination. Now, was Brian's depression real? Yes, of course it was. Was Brian genetically disposed to depression? Well, his father had suffered it to to, to a great degree. So maybe, but not that that fact alone um, actually is is, is conclusive. The nature-nurture debate is uh, a complex one. But there was clearly something going on in Brian's heart. His desire for good things had become a bad thing because they'd become a God thing. His good things that he had a desire for were to be a dutiful son. That was a good thing. He wanted to relieve his mother of her suffering. That was a good thing too. But these things had begun to consume him and dominate his life. In fact, this is what defined life for him. He was frustrated. He was angry. He was bitter because life hadn't turned out for him like he wanted it to, like he thought it was going to. He could have coped if it was him, but it was because it was his mother that that was a bigger issue. And as we spoke about these, unpacked these a bit, Brian began to improve uh, quite dramatically at times, but then uh, there'd be regression, then he'd, uh, then he'd uh, just improve again. He saw these issues There were times when he would repent of these issues and and believe the gospel, that this wasn't his world, that he wasn't God, that God loved him, God was committed to him. He believed those things and they changed him. And he believed that God also loved his mother. In fact, far more than Brian ever could love his mother. The promise of Romans 8 was pertinent and pressing to Brian. All things work together for good to those that love God. And that all is comprehensive, isn't it? And that included the situation that he found himself in and the situation that his mother found himself in. Now we sometimes misread that verse as though it's saying that all things are good. And that is, cl- not, that is clearly what it is not saying. A child dying at birth is not good. A five-year-old with meningitis is not good. A 25-year-old bride dying on a treadmill is not good. A husband and a father walking out on his wife and his family is not good. These are not good things, but the word of God, the gospel, has promised that they work together for our good. They all contribute to his plan to conform us to the image of his son, who himself was made perfect through suffering. Let me tell you about Claire. Claire was a teenager who'd started to self-harm. It started out of, uh, in, in frustration, a deep sense of her own helplessness. Initially, it was nothing more than a frantic scratching at the back of her hand. I'm sure that you've seen that happen. I'm sure you've seen people do that. And you may have done it yourself. It it is a a form of self-harm, as it were. 
um, you know, where you scratch your hand and you, uh, it becomes red and then you eventually break the skin. And often it's when you're, you're, you're anxious, you're, you're fretting, you're, you're troubled. And so it was with Claire. And uh, she knew people who, who cut herself, uh, cut themselves, uh, girls at school, she'd heard about this. And it wasn't an unusual thing for her in Claire's world. In fact, this was a bit of a social niche in which she could find a way to express her trouble and her pain. And so it wasn't a surprising uh, progression from the frantic scratching of the back of her hand to actually using a sharp implement to cut her arms and her legs. Claire was a deeply unhappy young girl. She wasn't popular at school. Primarily because she hadn't been drawn into the lifestyle of her friends, which included drink and drugs and clubs and sex. She was a quiet girl. She was an unassuming girl. And she was becoming increasingly isolated. And her response to that was to turn increasingly in upon herself. Cutting was her way of expressing her rage. And she found momentary relief from the sadness and the confusion. In the big, bad, wide world outside, she was uh, anonymous and helpless. But in her own bedroom, well, this was her world where she could be God. She was in charge and there was something liberating and even vicarious in the bloodletting. After that she sliced her arm, the anger subsided. Her rage was extinguished. At first, for a considerable length of time, but each time it did it, that uh, time just reduced. A psychiatrist told her that this was a a chronic condition and in his experience it would take years uh, to work through. He refused to hold out any hope to her troubled and anxious parents. But someone spoke with Claire. Someone listened to her story. Someone felt her pain. Claire wanted good things in life. She wanted friendship. That's a good thing. She wanted self-control. That's a good thing. She wanted friendship. All these things are good things. But for Claire, these things became inordinate desires. These good things became bad things because they became God things for her. They became an end in themselves. And in the end, she came to see that all of these desires were about herself and brought her only slavery, fear and misery. Claire needed the gospel. She needed to see herself in the light of who God is and what he'd done. She needed to understand the cross of Christ. She couldn't atone for herself and the good news is that she didn't need to try. Christ had gone to the cross. Christ as the ultimate self-harmer. But he had endured the beatings and the nails and the thorns for her. And as Claire came to understand the good news... And came to understand God in the light of the person and work of Christ, her heart changed and her self-harming stopped. She's grown, she has grown into a, a capable young woman with the scars to remind her of the price she paid for setting her heart on the gifts rather than the giver. Depression, self-harm, finally schizophrenia. Let me tell you one final story. Philip. Philip was about my age, but that's where the um, similarity ends. He was from a wretched home background. I can't overstate just how wretched it was. And he ended up at sea as a merchant sailor from the age of 14. He ran away effectively, but that was not the right place to run away to. Because at sea, over a period of years, he experienced persistent and severe abuse. uh, Physical, sexual, emotional and mental. Philip responded by withdrawing into himself further and further. And he did so until he got to the point where he no longer communicated with others. He never smiled, uh, he never spoke, at least not audibly, and he would often injure himself. He was on medication, but he would stop taking medication and run down the street naked. He would be found lying in the gutter. Um, And even when he was on medication, uh, it simply took the edge off his pain as opposed to dealt with it. When I first met Philip, he was in a psychiatric hospital in the fetal position in the corner of a locked room. He was clinically depressed. He was a diagnosed schizophrenic. He'd been hearing voices. He'd been having hallucinations. Uh, He was paranoid. Uh, He'd been running away from from things and from people. And he'd been sectioned for his own safety. I was in my my mid-20s 
And I was terrified when I was confronted with Philip. What did I do? What did I say? Could he hear me? Could he understand me? He was a Christian. I knew that. And I'd been asked to visit him. He was a member of the church that I'd just become the minister of, but I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And uh, he had, I had absolutely no clue at all about his condition. So what I did was just read the Bible to him. Uh, I'd spoke to him about the sermon that I'd preached the day before and the hymns that we'd, uh, we'd sung together. I recited them and, we pr- and I prayed for him. I was there for 20, 25 minutes. He never moved. He never acknowledged me. He never responded in any way at all. He was due that afternoon to go in for ECT. I didn't even know what that was in those days. My only uh, exposure to anything like this was a film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, my attempt at reciting that joke about preferring a bottle in front of me rather than a frontal lobotomy. But I left Philip and I was led uh, through one locked door after another. And my feelings of fear in going into that place were replaced by feelings of complete inadequacy and uselessness. The next morning I received a phone call from the charge nurse asking me to go in to see them. They'd like to talk to me as, uh, uh, about Philip. Apparently there'd been a marked improvement in Philip, almost a miraculous one, after my visit. So much so that the psychiatrists had decided not to go ahead with the scheduled ECT. They were wondering what it was that I said to him and whatever it was, could I say it to him again, they said. <laughs> <clears throat> and I agreed somewhat reluctantly initially. But over a period of a number of weeks, I paid regular visits to Philip, uh, and I saw him improve significantly. Over a period of months, he was in his own flat in the centre of town. He wasn't normal, whatever that word means, but he was a child of God, and his heart was and has continued to be responsive to the truth as it is in Christ. My experience of Philip was a proverbial drowning in the deep end but what I witnessed had a profound impact upon my involvement with and response to mental illness ever since truth did something the gospel worked my dispensing of the gospel in that instance was crude and inarticulate but by grace it reached deep into the heart of a broken young man who had proved resistant to conventional psychiatric treatment Now those three stories of depression, self-harm and schizophrenia share a number of features. The terrible nature of suffering, the tragic impact of misplaced affection and the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to reorientate us and restore us to be the lovers that we were made to be as image bearers, lovers of God and lovers of others. Now let me say finally, and then we'll open it up to questions. I don't subscribe to an over-realized eschatology. The gospel isn't a magic pill. The process of growing in increasing conformity to Christ is a lifetime project. Suffering is a feature of this fallen world, and uh, the scars of our brokenness remain. And new scars are often created. But neither do I subscribe to an underrealized eschatology either. We live in the light of the future and by grace we point to that. Psychological and emotional suffering is both real and difficult. But suffering is a feature of life in a fallen world. And the gospel calls us to suffer well. And the truth as it is in Christ, the work of the Spirit... The certainty of God's promises, the provision of his people, and the inevitability of the age to come, these all give us hope in the midst of our darkness, and they all call us to joyful obedience, even in the midst of our pain. And all I want to do is to give you confidence in whatever situation you find yourself in as you're dealing with people uh, who who are suffering, who are struggling, uh, whatever point on the spectrum they are, A different point to you, but on that same spectrum nonetheless. What I want to do is to give you confidence for yourself. Confidence in the gospel. The good news that is Jesus Christ. To capture your heart. To win your affections. To set your hope in God alone. And that's not going to be a magic wand that will wave over and suddenly your your, your suffering will disappear. 
uh, that is clearly not the case. But it does restore us to sanity, moment by moment, bit by bit, until God brings us to glory, when we will stand gloriously displayed as trophies of his grace. And uh, his son will say, Father, I've done this for you. Okay, we've got some time for questions. So it's over to you. Yes, please. Okay, so what's the name of the book again? Who Switched Off My Brain by Dr. Caroline Leaf. That's a, a, a recommended book um, in terms of the impact, uh, the, what, what thoughts do to uh, the, the physical changes in our brains. Okay, thank you very much for that. Yes, please. Okay, would you like to stand up, please? The question uh, c- concerns, uh, yeah, please, a disassociative state. Uh, if anybody has uh, any, any experience, uh, this lady's um, son is suffering from the condition and she's looking for help and, and, and advice. Okay. So, if you, you you approach it, your name is Alison. Okay, please uh, approach Alison after if it's uh, something that you have uh, experience and suf- suffering in, please to help her. Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that if Romans eight, for example, talks about how. Um, suffering where Paul says I'm persuaded that our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that it is to be revealed in us or to us uh, or, or through us um, and suffering is a feature of life in this, this fallen world uh, a lot of people say that um, suffering is the, is the ultimate, um, uh, ultimate argument against the existence of God how can God exist a good God and wise powerful God exist when there's so much suffering both globally macro and micro um, and what I usually say in those situations is, okay, I, let, I concede your argument. Let's take God out of the picture because I appreciate the fact that he's kind of controversial and, and, and uh, intrusive. Uh, and what are you left with? And what you're left with, if you take God out of a, a context of suffering, is suffering. Cold, indifferent, um, indiscriminate suffering. So taking God out of the picture doesn't help. But if you, we believe the gospel uh, and it's, uh, that in our suffering... God is working out all things together for his good, that, that we trust ourselves to a, a sovereign wise, a, a sovereign God who is inscrutably wise, uh, who is working out his purposes. Um, and, and that enables us to suffer well, so that we, we, we say with our suffering, it isn't our suffering that defines us, it is, it is the purposes of God in Christ that, that define us. Uh, it's not this cancer that is going to define me, it is who I am in Christ that is going to define me. Um, and, and we then can live a life whereby we, we, we give glory to God even in the midst of suffering. Okay, one more, then I think it's uh, time to go. Yes, please. Um, would you say something about the relationship between mental health and drug or alcohol use and which comes first, if indeed there is anything, or either of those that come first? Okay.
Okay, the question concerns mental health and drug and alcohol abuse and which comes first, if, if, if either does in those terms. Um, the problem with the term mental health is, is that it's a term that we use a lot but it's, it's very difficult to, to mail, nail down in terms of what it is. Mental illness, what does that actually mean? So is somebody turning to a bottle, for example, in order to get through life, to make it through a day, is that the sign of, of, some, of, of mental health or mental illness? Um, you know that, that that's the question that, that you grapple with, and and is that over dependency upon alcohol actually going to make the person mentally ill, or does it reflect somebody who can't cope uh, and has what in a, another context might be diagnosed as a mental illness, uh, just using that for some th- sort of therapy? Um, and I think that that all of those are true, um, and and I think that that I would still say in my my experiences of what has happened is that bringing the gospel to bear people with uh, drug and, and alcohol issues is, is sanity in the midst of their insanity. It's truth in the midst of the lies that they're believing. Um, and it's, not, it's never a word of condemnation. It's never a word of, you know, pull yourself together, sort it out or whatever. But it is a message that because it speaks to the heart and not simply their actions, it is that which will, will, will give them hope and restore them to, to sanity um, and, and bring about full, full re- restoration by, by grace. Um, and so... That's, that, 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 they're still, I think, objects of getting to the heart of the problem. Okay, thank you, everyone. <laughs>